Welcome to Beth Adonai. I'm Bobby Smith, and this is our 10 o'clock teaching this morning. Um, we're a little late getting started, but here we are. So I'll try to do this a little in Yankee gear because the day you got a full hour, <laughs> you don't get a full hour. So, so let's start with a uh, with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven. Father, we come before you on your day to draw nearer to you, to study your word at our 10 o'clock class that we have each and every week. Father, open our hearts and our minds that we would hear, hear what you have to tell us today, hear what you have in message for us today, to apply it to our everyday daily lives. In Yeshua's name I pray, amen. So this week's Torah portion is um, one of the hardest to pronounce, I think, if you, um, for me, maybe it's just me, but it's Beha which means when you set up or when you ascend. It comes from uh, Numbers chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 16. And obviously we have a Haftorah every week and a Brit Hadashah each week that uh, correspond to the Torah portion. They, they, um, they, they are um, meaningful with the Torah portion when you read them all together. This portion, Torah portion this week is just jam-packed, telling of the story of the consecration of the Levites, the first Passover in the wilderness, the silver trumpets, which is different than the uh, shofar, the cloud of glory when, they, the, when the Israelites depart Mount Sinai, the grumbling in the wilderness, the very first Sanhedrin, and punishment of Miriam for her comments toward her brother. There are five of the 613 commandments in this week's Torah portion, and I always like to give credits to the research that I did because this, these words are not all mine. Um, FFOZ Daniel Lancaster, I study his Torah 1 and 5, get a lot of this from that. Art Scrolls. Um, commentary on the Torah, the Humash, Art Scrolls Rashi, and Midrash Rabbi, and Walk with Numbers from Jerry Enoch Feinberg. All this comes from, the, from, the, from that research. So, we'll begin with centered and balanced. Sometimes life gets out of balance. In Messianic Judaism, people sometimes become so enamored with Judaism that they lose sight of Messiah. The menorah is a good illustration of living in balance. It had three lamps on the right, three on the left, creating a perfect equilibrium. Staying balanced requires keeping things centered. Messiah is the lamp at the center of our faith. When Messiah is the center of our attention, the rest of our lives will fall naturally into place. The earthly sanctuary reflects the heavenly sanctuary. The seven lamps of the menorah correspond to the divine number. Judaism teaches that the seven lamps of the menorah correspond to the constellations of the seven stars. Just as the sanctuary on earth reflects the sanctuary above, the seven lights below represent the seven lights above. The book of Revelation further strengthens the correspondence between the seven lights of the menorah and the seven stars. The Apostle John 
sees a vision of the risen Messiah standing among seven lamps holding seven stars in his right hand in Revelation 1.16. Seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's in Revelation 3.1. He explains the imagery of the menorah and the stars in mysterious language. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven assemblies and the seven lampstands are the seven assemblies. That's in Revelation 1.20. Later in this vision, John sees a blazing menorah before the throne of God, which identifies the seven spirits of God, Revelation 4, 5, and the seven angels who stand before God. John describes the Messiah as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. These passages illustrate the concept of the sanctuary below reflecting the sanctuary above. In the Humash, it says, Rambam explains why the menorah was singled out for this consolation instead of the more auspicious rituals such as the Yom Kippur service, which was performed exclusively by the high priest, the Kohen Gaol. He explains, based in part on Tankuma, that the kindling in this passage alludes to a later menorah, that of the miracle of Hanukkah. God was alluding to Aaron that his role was greater than that of the leaders of the 12 tribes who brought gifts to the tabernacle because there would be a time when the temple service would be discontinued and the Torah would be on the verge of being forgotten. The offerings of the tribal leaders were great and impressive, but they were temporary. Aaron's contribution would be eternal. Rashi's commentary on Numbers 8, 1 through 4 says... Why was the passage dealing with the killing of the menorah put next to the passage dealing with the contribution and the offering of the princes of the tribe of Israel? If you remember last week, the Torah portion ended, in, which made it the longest Torah portion, was each of the 12 tribes' gifts were exactly the same and that was listed 12, 12 different times. That's how the Torah portion ended last week. Because when Aaron saw the contributions and offerings made by the princes and the inauguration of the tabernacle, he felt badly about it, for neither he nor his tribe was with them in the inauguration. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, Your role is greater than theirs, for you kindle and prepare the menorah. The kindling of the menorah in this passage serves as a precursor to the festival of Hanukkah. The annual celebration of the dedication, which that's what the word Hanukkah means is dedication, of the altar. The festival of Hanukkah celebrates the rekindling of the temple menorah with eight nights of lighting lamps. During the festival of Hanukkah, we read number seven, which tells us the story of the tribal dedication of the altar and the story of Aaron's arrangement of the lamps when lighting the menorah. Numbers chapter 8, 5 through 26 gives us a description of the consecration of the Levites. From all the firstborn among the people, 
of Israel are mine, both humans and animals. On the day I struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, I set them apart for myself. But I have taken the Levim, which is the Levites, in place of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I have given the Levites to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service of the people of Israel in the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel so that no plague will fall on the people of Israel in consequence of their coming too close to the sanctuary. This is what Moshe, Aaron, and all the community of the people of Israel did to the Levites. The people of Israel acted in accordance with everything that Adonai had ordered Moshe regarding the Levites. At the beginning of the book of Numbers, Moses and Aaron counted the Levites and set them aside for service in the tabernacle. The Levites were substitutes for the firstborn sons of the Israelites. Both the Levites could serve in the temple. Before the Levites could serve in the temple, they needed to be initiated into the tabernacle service, which is their consecration. To assume their status as substitutes of the firstborn, and in serving God and transporting the tabernacle, the Levites required a sacrificial ritual, as did the consecration of the priest. To understand why the Levites required a bull for a sin offering, we must understand the two roles that the Levites played on behalf of the community. The Levites stood in as a substitute for the firstborn sons of the 12 tribes. But in addition to serving as surrogates firstborns, the Levites represent represented Israel in matters pertaining to the holy things of the sanctuary. Because the Levites represented all Israel in their service to the tabernacle, all Israel needed to lay hands upon them to invest them with that corporate slash communal identity. The actual choreography of the ceremony was difficult to imagine, but its meaning is clear. In the sacrificial system, a man laid his hands upon an animal he meant to sacrifice in order to invest it with his own identity. As the community presented the Levites to the Lord, Aaron and Moses waved them as a wave offering. A wave offering entailed lifting an object up before the Lord and waving it in six different directions, east, south, west, north, up and down. The Torah does not tell us how Aaron actually waved the Levites. We do, however, know what waving represents. The wave offering symbolized a transfer of ownership from the offerer to God. The Israelites laid hands upon the Levites as they would upon a sacrifice, as if to designate the Levites as sacrificial substitutes. Instead of sacrificing them, however, Aaron waved the Levites. They became property of the priesthood, withheld from the altar, just as a breast and thigh of a peace offering are withheld from the altar. From the altar. Immediately after being waved, the Levites laid their hands on two, bull, two bulls that did go to the altar. In Numbers 8.26, the Levites were to begin their term of the tabernacle at the age of 25 and retire at the age of 50. Now, this is the Levites. It doesn't say anything about the priest, just the Levites and their service. So, I'm not sure if the priest would, would go on further, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they did. A 50-year-old Levite, 
The Torah dismisses the Levite from his position of servitude when he turns 50 to accord him the dignity appropriate of his age. The older men in the community are to train the younger men in the ways of the kingdom because they had experienced it. Imagine how different our communities might be if we valued the wisdom of gray heads more than the charismatic exuberance of young men. The next subject of our, um, I think I may have missed a consecration. The next subject of our Torah portion is in Numbers chapter 9 verse 1 which is uh, a Passover that happened in the wilderness, the first Passover in the wilderness. The year after the Exodus, God commanded Israel to bring a Pesach offering at its appointed time, the 14th of Nisan, the first month of the year. Since the book of Numbers began with events of the second month, Exodus 1-1, this chapter is clearly out of chronological order. And indeed, the sages use it as proof that the order of the Torah is not necessarily chronological. In such cases, however, one must seek to understand why the Torah preferred to list an event after or before it actually occurred. Surely the sages did not mean to say the order of the Torah is purely random. Rashi, citing the sages, notes that this was the only Pesach offering that Israel brought throughout the 40 years in the wilderness, and this is indicative of the nation's disgrace of not being worthy to enter Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, immediately, where they would have been able to observe this commandment annually. In order not to assinuate this failure of the people, God chose not to begin the book of Numbers with it. That's his reasoning for why, why it's out of chronological order. The story of Passover in the wilderness illustrates the difference between the ideal and the actual. Ideally, Israel should have been already in the land of Israel celebrating their first Passover. The idealist might have said, this is, there is no point in doing Passover this year. We are not yet in the land. God works with us where we are. We rarely find ourselves in ideal circumstances. Presently, the world is an imperfect place, and we are imperfect people. Israel remains in exile, the kingdom has not yet come, the temple has not been restored, and the son of David has not taken up his throne in Jerusalem. The Torah's worldview is idealistic, but it is also very practical. Those living under the Torah instruction are much better equipped for dealing with second best than those who live with their heads continually in the clouds of heavenly idealism. Life is full of detours and unanticipated delays. Things rarely work out the way we plan or imagine them. Work with what you have. We keep the commandments to the extent that we are able. If we cannot keep the Passover in the land, we will keep it in the wilderness. If we cannot keep the Passover in the land, we'll keep it in the wilderness. If we cannot keep the Sabbath, the Shabbat, in its fullness, we will keep it to the extent that we are able. In some sense, all Passovers are Passovers in the wilderness. We will not celebrate according to the perfect ideal until our beloved Messiah, Yeshua, our King, ushers in the kingdom. That is why we conclude every Passover Seder with the words, 
next year in Jerusalem. In Numbers 9-6, they describe a second Passover. A group of people who were ineligible to bring the offering because they were in a state of ritual contamination, having an intense desire to participate in this great spiritual experience, appealed to Moses. In recognition of their nobility, God made them agents through whom he revealed the new com commandment of Pesach Shani, which is the second Pesach offering, which would be brought a month after the appointed time for Pesach, still done today. The normal course of the Torah is to give the commandments through Mo Moses rather than own the initiative of others. But because of the sincere desire of these people for spiritual elevation, God gave the honor of bringing about the giving of the new commandment. The second Pesach differs from the first in that there's no festival associated with it, even those bringing the offering. Furthermore, although they may not eat leavened food, hummets, with the offering, they may possess and eat hummets the day that they bring it. This is Rashi's commentary. The Talmud has three versions of who these contaminated people were. They were the bearers of the coffins of Joseph, bringing his remains to the land of Israel for burial. Or Mishael and El Safan, who dealt with the bodies of Nadab and Abihu, or men who had come upon unattended, unidentified corpse and had fulfilled the commandment of burying it. They became ineligible to bring the offering because they were engaged in performing a mitzvah. The commandment applies only to Jewish men in Jerusalem with the temple and Levitical system in place. Messianic believers, and this is the part of today that the second Shemani is, uh, is somewhat celebrated, host a special event on the Seder night of the second Passover to remember the story of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. hope I said that right. The disciples who removed the master's body from the cross and prepared him for burial. By caring for the master's body that night, they rendered, rendered themselves unclean and were not able to celebrate the Passover. So as a result, we, we celebrate that uh, remembrance on Pesach Shemi. We now transition into the part of the Torah about the silver trumpets. This is in um, Numbers chapter 10, verse 2. The Israelites made two trumpets to use for calling assemblies, breaking the camp and setting out the camps. These trumpets were not shofars. They were silver trumpets. Unlike the ram's horn, which is a shofar, the silver trumpets consisted of a conical or cylindrical metal, metal tube with a flared bell. Moreover, Moses was the inventor of the form of their trumpet, which was made of silver. Its description is this. Its length, it was less than a cubit. It was composed of a narrow tube, somewhat thicker than a flute, but with so much breath of a man's mouth, it ended in the form of a bell. Like common trumpets, its sound was called in the Hebrew tongue asosrah. That was from uh, Joseph in Antiquities. Josephus, I'm sorry, in Antiquities. A long blast with both trumpets signaled the entire assembly to meet at the tabernacle. A blast on a single trumpet summoned only the leaders to meet. When the trumpets were sounded in short blasts, it was time to break camp and set out. 
A series of short blasts on both trumpets was to be sounded during times of war. The trumpets were also to be blown to announce Sabbaths, festival days, new moons, and times of sacrifice. Believers should be encouraged to hear the shofar blown on Rosh Hashanah, but the commandment of the two silver trumpets belongs exclusively to the priesthood and the temple. Silver trumpets are not to be used in the synagogue. The blowing of the silver trumpets in the temple is an earthly echo of the great trumpet of the Lord that will be sounded in heaven at the commencement of the days of awe described in the book of Revelation. In that book, John describes seven trumpet blasts that correspond to the various judgments visited on earth. Why aren't the silver trumpets used in Judaism today? The silver trumpets were not meant to be used just anywhere. They were among the holy vessels of the tabernacle. It would have been inappropriate to use the trumpets outside of the temple. So, in Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 through 12, the Israelites were preparing to leave the land, or to leave Mount Sinai, and, and travel to the land. The Torah in Numbers 10, 11 through 28 records in detail the order in which the four tribal formations and the Levite families begin their journeys. This was standard procedure throughout the 40 years sojourn in the wilderness. The silver trumpets created a sense of awe and splendor, like a fanfare of a high king. As the children of Israel finally broke camp and left Mount Sinai, they set out like a great army and the personal entourage of a king. The cloud, the trumpets, the camps, the resplendent tribal banners evoked the images of the great and legal regal procession of a royal host. All this took place on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, five days after the second Passover. Today we know that month as Iyar, around April or May of our Gregorian calendars. As Israel set forth from Sinai, they moved out like the army of the Lord. In Numbers 10.35, as the camp of Israel set out, they moved in formation as the army of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant led them into battle. When the Levites stepped forth carrying the Ark on poles, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee, for, flee before you. On this first journey, the Levites, bearing the Ark, traveled three days' distance ahead and then waited on the arrival of the host. When at last the host of Israel arrived, when the Israelites were ready to make camp, and return the ark to the tabernacle, Moses would say, Return, O Lord, to the myriad of the thousands of Israel. But does God, who created all things, actually have enemies? The enemies of Israel are the enemies of God. Those who hate and persecute his people are his enemies. Satan is the greatest enemy of all, because he is the accuser of the brethren. Our greatest weapon against the devil, in addition to our relationship with Yeshua, is the Bible. So as we transition, we're now in uh, Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And this is the story of malcontentment. God is slow to anger, usually, 
Complaining can incite his swift wrath. The generation in the wilderness were no, no worse complainers than any other collection of human beings. Human beings are prone to complain. We are malcontents. A person of faith is duty-bound to rise above the natural human instinct to complain and criticize. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, as it says in Psalms 118.24. Every day, our lives are full of both good, thi good things and bad things. Every human being has positive characteristics and negative characteristics. Grumbling of things is a telltale sign of weak faith. The antidote for poison, a poison, malcontented spirit is gratitude. When we force ourselves to focus on the good and the positive and to thank God for all the blessings he daily bestows, the way we experience life is completely transformed. Judaism teaches that there is even a blessing for one who hears bad news. Blessed is the true judge. The Torah tells the story of the incident at Taberah in three short verses. Numbers 11, 1 through 13. But the people began complaining about their hardships to Adonai. When Adonai heard it, his anger flared up. So that fire from Adonai broke out against them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried to Moshe. Moshe prayed to Adonai, and the fire abated. The place was called Taverah, burning, because Adonai's fire broke out against them. The story of Taverah is the first story of how evil speech, complaining, and discontentment incites divine wrath from the Lord. The basic storyline recurs through, a book, through the book of Numbers. In several stories, Israel's discontentment gives rise to murmuring, evil speech, and sometimes outright rebellion. The Lord punishes the people. God instilled human beings with a critical faculty that can detect flaw and imagine improvement. Therefore, we recognize shortcomings, our own shortcomings, and do what we can to correct them and improve things. This God-given impetus to recognize problems has malfunctioned within us. Human behavior, being what it is, always drifts toward discontentment and criticism. No matter what the situation, we always find something to complain about. In Numbers 11.4, the Israelites had discontentment with their manna. The mixed multitude now showed its true colors. The new complaint was especially galling. For not only did it complain that God's manna was insufficient, which the Torah testifies is completely not true, but they went so far as to say that they preferred Egyptian slavery to the presence of God. The same often happens to us when we take on a life of discipleship. For a while, it might be fresh and exciting, each day filled with a new discovery. But after a period of time, the novelty wears off. We begin to miss our old vices and entertainments. We begin to feel nostalgic for the ways we turned our backs on. When this happens, and it normally does, and your faith is challenged, it is those with a true heart for the Lord that persevere. If you will press on, you will discover future joys, further joys, great depths, and new thrills in the pursuit of God.
Moses didn't handle this criticism very well. In chapter 11, verse 11 through 15, we, we, we see how he reacted. Moses cried out. He says, why have I not found favor in your sight? You have laid the burden of all this people on me. Moses was exhausted with the ceaseless grumbling and complaining of the people. The next time you are tempted to complain about your pastor, leader, rabbi, teacher, boss, whatever, lead, whatever leader, remember Moses. Remember the story of Moses. The cumulative burden of the people's complaints was, was enough to put Moses over the edge. If Moses could not withstand the pressures of leading God's people, remember he was trained for this for 80 years, then how much less can the average person withstand those pressures? The irony of this passage is that Moses himself started complaining. He was complaining about people always complaining. In doing so, he became the very thing that he was criticizing. God rescued Moses by giving him other leaders to carry the burden of the people. Anyone who has served any length of time leading anything can identify with the frustration Moses felt as he cried out to the Lord. Even when things are going well and leadership is well-liked, discontentment, discontentment begins to seep in and spread throughout the congregation or organization or whatever. Human beings do not need legitimate complaints. We always find something to complain about, and these complaints inevitably turn against our leaders. Remember when you were a child or you were a parent or a, a, a child that became a teenager, you always knew more than your parents did. But it was amazing as you grew up and became parents yourself that uh, you discovered how far off you were. As people of Torah, we should learn from the book of Moses, or the book of Numbers. If Moses was so distressed with leadership responsibilities that he felt suicidal, how much more so are our congregational leaders? People of Torah should be proactive about defending leadership and silencing the voice of discontentment and antagonism that so quickly spread throughout the congregation. We need to make sure that I mean, when there's really, really problems, obviously you don't want to ignore real, real, real problems, but you, you want to make sure that you defend people and think the best. So what, Moses, what God came up with for Moses was a delegation of authority. He came up with the, what, what uh, they de describe as the first Sanhedrin. We, we got a, um, a glimpse of the Sanhedrin in, in Exodus, but this is the actual the first Sanhedrin where they actually practiced Numbers 11:16. Moses complained that he was no longer able to single-handedly lead Israel. God capitulated and allowed Moses to appoint 70 leaders as co-leaders. The 70 leaders acting in the spirit and authority of Moses constituted the first Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a biblically ordained institution. The Sanhedrin was like the supreme court over Israel. If the Sanhedrin is God-ordained and a Torah institution whose authority was endorsed by Yeshua himself, why is it, along with the sages and rabbis, so reviled among so many believers? Not just Christian believers, but also Messianic believers have a disdain for the Sanhedrin, sages, and rabbis. 
Undoubtedly, our opinion of the Sanhedrin is colored primarily by the narratives of the Gospels and Acts, wherein we lay a largely, we, we learn of a largely corrupt Sanhedrin, which is led by these um, villainous collection of powerful elitist Sadducees. And they persecuted Yeshua and the disciples. That limited exposure to the institution, coupled with the traditional church's general tendency toward anti-Semitism, have all converged to demonize the institution of the Sanhedrin. At the very least, we should acknowledge the biblical basis for this institution and its authority. God invested a portion of his spirit into the simple basis that it functions as a ruling body over Israel. We also learn in this Torah portion, in Numbers 11, 19-20, about the punishment of abundance. While still on the way to Mount Sinai, the children of Israel cried out to God because they had no food. He met their need by sending quail into their midst. This is in Exodus 16:13. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. Immediately after they received the quail, the manna began to descend. One year later, which is where we are today in this Torah portion, the children of Israel had grown to despise the manna, and they longed for this quail again. They cried out for meat. A common saying is, be careful of what you wish for, because you just might get it. The children of Israel cried for meat. They complained against the Lord, saying that they longed for the foods of Egypt. The Lord punished their malcontented spirits by sending an abundance of quail. He withheld the manna for a month, replacing it with a month's supply of quail. Apparently, the quail did not keep well. Sickness and plague followed. After a few days of quail, the people longed for that manna again. Abundance is not always a blessing. Greed follows. A culture with too much food eats too much and becomes overweight and insensitive. A family with too much income begins to spend foolishly. Yeshua tells us that instead of seeking to store up treasure on earth, which inevitably steals our hearts away from God, we are to merely ask for our daily bread. There's nothing wrong with wealth. It's just you have to manage it godly. Numbers 11:23. Moses was depressed. Depression and self-pity create a spiritual blindness. When Moses allowed himself to be overcome by the pressures and stresses of his responsibilities, he slipped into despondency and temporarily went spiritually blind. Moses' reply to the Lord when he assured him he would provide meat for the people of Israel is shocking. Had Moses forgotten that God was already miraculously feeding the people on a daily basis? If God chose to feed them meat instead of manna every morning, what difference does it make? Moses' despondency had blinded him to God's power. His depression had flattened his faith. God responded with a rhetorical question of his own when he asked Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? The next time you find yourself despondent or depressed, remind yourselves of the great things that God has done for you in the past. Numbers 11.25, we learn a lot about the gift of prophecy. God installed the 70 elders over Israel by taking the spirit 
that was on Moses and distributing the same spiritual gift among the elders. In the Bible, prophecy is communicated directly from God. A prophet is someone who hears from God. The message may or may not have something to do with the future. A prophet is someone who is specifically anointed by God for the purpose of conveying prophecies to his people. The Spirit of God rested upon Moses. The Lord took that portion, or took from that, a portion of his spirit and distributed it to the 70 elders whom Moses had selected. The 70 elders can be compared to the community of Yeshua's disciples. The Lord took from the portion of his Holy Spirit upon Yeshua and distributed it among the disciples. The disciples of Yeshua walk in the anointing of Messiah. The Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKadosh, which anointed Yeshua, has been bequeathed to us, his followers. For this reason, we are collectively called the body of the anointed one. That is to say that every disciple will exercise the same power and miraculous, that is not to say now, that every power, every disciple will exercise the same power and miraculous authority that Yeshua exercised, but it certainly means that the potential is within us. And then we come to the Cushite, the story of the Cushite wife. Numbers 12, 1 through 10. Miriam and Aaron began criticizing Moshe on account of the Ethiopian woman he had married. For he had in fact married an Ethiopian woman. They said, Is it true that Adonai has spoken only to Moshe? Hasn't he spoken with us too? Adonai heard them. Now this man Moshe was very humble, more so than anyone on earth. Suddenly, Adonai told Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. The three of them went out. Adonai came down in a column of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. He summoned Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. He said, Listen to what I say. When there is a prophet among you, I, Adonai, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. But it isn't that way with my servant Moshe. He is the only one who is faithful in my entire household. With him, I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles. He sees the image of Adonai. So why weren't you afraid to criticize my servant Moses? The anger of Adonai flared up against them, and he left. But when the cloud was removed from above the tent, Miriam had Zerat, as white as snow. Aaron looked at Miriam, for she was white as snow. The Torah takes a moment to inform the reader that Moses was the most humble of men. Miriam and Aram had no justification for their complaints about Moses. Though he operated a higher level of prophecy than she, or Aaron, she and Aaron, he did not gloat or abuse his place. Rather, he assessed himself as nothing, conducted himself with the greatest of humility. The humility of Moses, the first redeemer, sets the pattern for the second redeemer that follows. Lashan Hurrah, Shimrash Halashon, which is the power of speech, is the Torah's laws of speech, which constitutes God's plan for how people should live with each other. They are the tools that the Torah has given us to remove anger, bitterness, and jealousy from our hearts and eliminate strife, hurt, and divisiveness from the Jewish slash believing people. When we examine the workings of our words, 
we come to see that they, more than any other human capacity, define us. What we say and how we say it is who we are. Angry, hurtful words define an angry, hurtful person. Kind and considerate words define a kind and considerate person. The laws of proper speech are Hashem's specific practical directives for how to use this defining capacity. They teach us how to look at people, speak to people, and speak about people. They reflect the Torah's wisdom, which, seeks, which sees the impact and riddle effect of every negative interaction. The Torah understands that at the core of virtually every broken friendship, shattered career, or divorce is a seed of hatred, a seed usually planted by a hurtful word. The Torah's laws reflect Hashem's knowledge that much of the pain and anguish of life can be averted by restraining ourselves from sowing these seeds. It's actually a simple principle. If one removes negativity, gossip, slander, and divisiveness from one's vocabulary, one automatically and dramatically improves one's own life and the lives of everyone else around them. Lashon Hara is defined as information which is either derogatory or potentially harmful to another individual. A derogatory statement about someone is Lashon Hara, even if it will definitely not cause harm to that person, or to focus on the shortcomings of another person is in itself wrong. A statement that could potentially harm someone, be it financial, physical, psychological, or otherwise, is Lashon Hara, even if the information is not negative. There's a gentleman called um, Kofetz Kaim. Hopefully this will work. Okay, it's not working. There it is. Kofetz Kaim is, um, Art Scrolls published a lot of his books. He lived, he lived in back, back in the 19th century. And he's, he's an authority on Lashon Hara. And his, his daily dose books, there's a lesson today, the one on the, the, my left, I guess y'all's left, is, is, is an excellent read if you don't have it. It's, it's, you, you read each, each and every day, it's by the, by the calendar, a lesson in Lashon Hara, and that's where this next story comes from, which is entitled, A Swindler Comes to Town. People who speak Lashon Hara tend to rationalize their sinful behavior with the contention that a listener wanted to hear the gossip and that he obviously enjoyed it. Moreover, the two remain good friends after their discussion. Can one really be guilty of causing his listener harm when he obviously had such a good time? The fallacy of such thinking can be explained by the following parable. A swindler came to a certain town and disguised himself as a respectful leader in the community. When a visitor arrived in town, the swindler welcomed him like an old friend and invited him to a local inn where they could enjoy each other's company. At the end, the swindler said, It's been so many years since the last time we saw one another. My joy is indescribable. This calls for a celebration. Please go to the counter and tell the manager to serve us the very best of everything he has to offer, and of course, I will pay the bill. The two whined and dined until they had both eaten their fill. At that point, the swindler slipped out the door, leaving his guests with the enormous bill to pay. The poor fellow explained to the manager what had transpired, but to no avail. All I know, said the manager, is that you came into the counter and ordered all that food and drink. Whatever happened between you and that other fella is no concern to me. Pay up.
One who listens to Lashon Hara is like the visitor in our parable. The listener is happy and feels no enmity toward the speaker, who seems to be entertaining him free of charge. The listener sees the speaker as his dear confidant, who tells him private information that he might not divulge to others. But all this only on this world while the shop is open. All this is only on in this world while the shop is open and the merchant extends credit. In the next world, however, where the ledger is open and the collectors make their rounds, one will have to stand in judgment for having listened to accept and accepting forbidden talk. Every word that he's listened to will be recorded there and he will have to pay a very heavy price. Our sages teach, Lashon Hara kills three, the speaker, the listener, and the person being discussed. A wise man will consider the ramifications of his actions before he acts. One should use his power of speech to arouse his brethren, to strengthen their commitment to Torah and mitzvah observance, and he should strive to bring peace among his fellow. Miriam, in chapter 12, verse 15 of Numbers, was, was given a punishment of Zerat. Even Aaron and Miriam were not above the sin of grumbling. The Torah does not tell us the details of their gripe. The complaint against Moses had to do with his role as leader over the assembly. Both Miriam and Aram were prophets in their own right. They each had personally received prophecies from God. They began to resent Moses' sole leadership over the assembly. Miriam and Aram assumed that no one could hear their private gripe against their brother. They forgot that God could hear anything, anywhere, anytime. How many times do we indulge in private conversations forgetting that God is listening? We should always remember our words are not only heard, but actually recorded in heaven. In Matthew 12, 36 through 37, the Lord struck Miriam with leprosy as a punishment for speaking evil against her brother. Moses interceded on her behalf with a short, urgent prayer. The Lord relented and removed leprosy, but Miriam still had to put, be put outside the camp for seven days because she was richly unfit. Moses was the greatest prophet. Rambam refers to Moses as the father of the prophets. Both those who preceded him and those who follow him, with the exception of Messiah, Moses is the greatest prophet who ever lived. The Lord explained, with Moses I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. He heard the voice of God directly, no oracles or visions, he simply heard the voice of God speaking to him mouth to mouth, that is conversationally. That is what makes the Torah so special. It is a written word, work of the direct communication, the direct word spoken from God to his greatest prophet. The humility of Moses made room for God to use him. Because he was the humblest man on the face of the earth, he qualified to be the greatest prophet on the face of the earth. He was also a precursor for Yeshua, who was a very humble man. Which, um, I love these pictures here. The... Um, Rabbi Feinstein ends this week with his walk your talk. Parashat 
Fahalaka describes the pattern for ascending. Israel, called to national fellowship with the Lord, must set up lamps and face their light with sevenfold brilliance to enlighten the chamber of the holy place. A place of fresh hala and priestly fellowship with the Lord. We re relive this memory every Shabbat when we light the candles, drink our wine, and break our hala. The time of Kiddush, sanctifying the meal in fellowship with the Lord. The ark is carried upon the shoulders to the promised land, being caused to aliyah, would have fulfilled the literal meaning of this week's portion. Instead, there unfolds a pattern of speaking with and against the Lord. The ark is mired down in the wilderness, and progress halts. Eldad and Miadad prophesy, but Miriam and Aaron rebel. Believers cannot gossip or slander and still expect to behold God's temple with the holy ark making its descendants from heaven to earth, its descent. God calls us to join ourselves to his kingdom. Are we preparing ourselves for the coming of the ark of the covenant? Shabbat Shalom.